Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this week we review James Graham's Brexit drama. We discuss how the referendum campaign really played out. And we ask a question. If Yvette Cooper were Labour leader, would she be follow back pro-European? So, Stephen, we, I was going to say, we and most of the new statesmen, it felt like, you, me, Anoush, Julia and the gaffer, went out last week to see a preview screening of James Graham's Channel 4 drama, The Brexit, The Uncivil War, on this week, available on foreign demand. How did you find it? I suppose we should do a bit of a declaration of interest. So James Graham was writing the diary in, the mag- in this week's magazine, previously discussed that I'm a big fan of his work, I think, as are yeah. you. I mean, I'm not quite in the pay of Big Graham, but I wrote a profile of him 18 months ago, and since then I've followed his career with interest. He seems to be doing all right. But did you like it? Did it hit the hit the spot for you? Yeah, so I think... So what I like about his plays, including his sort of less political ones, like Quiz, which is the story of the coughing major who may or may not have cheated in Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, is what makes them work very well is the incredible compassion and empathy with his subjects. So you don't have the... I'm sorry, I'm afraid I am going to... Take the name of our Lord David in vain. You do have what I regard as the David Hare problem, which is that, you know, lots of politicians do things which I regard to be evil and to have evil consequences, but they don't do them even in private by saying, well, I just hate poor people and want to sell them off. They use words like efficiency or fairness or... See, I think yeah. you're being a bit harsh there on David Hare because the absence of war is very sympathetic to Neil Kinnock and it's yeah. basically about a guy who's incredibly eloquent and passionate and, and private but then can't ever bring it to the, the stage. But I know what you mean. There is a strand of political playwriting and small p and big p political playwriting particularly which basically involves someone hectoring you about what the correct opinion is and it's always quite unsatisfying as drama. So for anyone who hasn't watched this, it begins with... Dominic Cummings, one of the strategists for Vote Leave, the official Leave campaign after the referendum, both giving evidence at what presumably is a Senate inquiry because the woman's American accent. Although it, it has that, that awful paint swatch background that reminds me of the DCMS committee room. Well, it's in some committee room in the future. In, it's in 2020, yeah. maybe when, yeah, yeah, when paint samples have taken over the world. And also him applying for jobs and people going, so you ran Vote Leave, but we've never heard of you. And it's obviously Benedict Cumberbatch. Now, he plays it kind of a bit like... Sherlock in that you know you can sort of imagine things swirling around his brain and then distilling them into one kind of awesome slogan and a bit like Hugh Laurie's performance as Dr House where he just says it's kind of incredibly compelling to watch because he just goes bored now boring meeting and walks out which you know someone acting like a toddler is much better than people just soberly sitting around having a boring three-hour meeting 
that has its own problems, which I'll come back to, but tell me more about how you felt about it. Well, so I think as drama, it, it works brilliantly, right? It is a brilliant... And people who remember my extensive feelings about she's not running out are going to go, hmm, I smell a hypocrite in the building. Because, to my mind, as someone who... So I, I went back and reread The Odd Squad, my first NS cover story, which was, of course, about Vote Leave, to see you know, how I felt about it and whether or not my impression of it was correct. Because what I've written in the eye about it is that... I think if you were doing the history of, of the Leave referendum result, you actually would not make Cummings the the main character, even if you were doing a kind of campaign room drama of the kind than, than it is. The central figure is Matthew Elliott, who, of course, had been thinking about what a Leave campaign would look like for a very long time. So he came up through the Taxpayers' Alliance. He founded he the Taxpayers' groomed Alliance. groomed, in the um, nicest possible sense, a lot of people like... I think, didn't Jonathan Isby, who's now at Brexit Central, come through there? Yeah, I mean, you know, Dylan Sharp, who's now at uh, Downing Street. Uh, Fire Susie the Simes, Sun and the DWP. Yeah. At, at Downing Street. If, if, you, if you were to list out random sort of 10 talented right-wing staffers most of them at some point have been spotted or groomed again in a where there really needs to be a word for not in a pedo way is what i'm trying to say he's just he, he's a talent spotted them ta- and encouraged yeah. them and nurtured them mentored them mentored say. let's say mentored yeah. because it has one of those words and it's like yeah no i don't mean that used no to av uh, very effectively and if you look at the no to av campaign you do get this sense of hmm this does look a an awful lot like that they did a poster that says something like av costs 250 million you know and there was a picture of a baby it said i need an incubator not the alternate not a new electoral system and yeah. it's like and it was basically a test drive of the 350 million for the nhs message yeah yeah and this thing is and in many ways if, if you kind of look at them back to back again as i wrote at the time it very much was the director's car partly with the the cachet that him having won that referendum had given him and part of what that cachet gave him is when it allowed him to hire cummings and when people went this guy's rude and difficult why are we putting up with him he could go what he meant to say was and go around smoothing this and that and actually the the, the decisions made by Elliot were i would say much more important but that's not very good drama because he's quite boring Normal. not in a yeah this yeah. is my problem about drama has an interestingness bias and it's exactly the same bias that journalism has right there was an interview that john ronson gave i think last week saying if you want to get away with anything be will be boring because mm. it's impossible for journalists to write about it's why i love the journalism of michael lewis because he writes about systems that are broken in a way that doesn't put you to sleep you know like the financial crash and i remember i did this interview with saeed fired hyanathan who writes a lot about facebook and he said look the brilliant thing that came along was you know aggregate iq and cambridge analytica and alexander nix who kind of gave these presentations that were basically like here is how i can help you do all these terribly undemocratic things and actually it made it incredibly easy to write about because you had an identifiable villain rather than trying to write about a process that's broken like how does the electoral commission have enough money in order to do the enforcement that needs to do all of those things are are really really difficult and this is exactly my not exactly my problem with Dominic Cummings. I think it's a legitimate way to treat it in drama. And, and James Graham being James Graham, he has balanced it quite fairly out. But, you know, this is somebody who's presented as being a kind of, you know, savant about data. And I remember 18 months ago when Dominic Cummings was still on Twitter, I had to tell him how to thread tweets because he was doing one of his incredibly long tweet storms and it was on tweet 12. And I was just like, no one can follow this. Do you not know that there's a button where you can, you can th- thread your tweets? And the same thing, I just really, really have this open question about whether or not he is a kind of cargo cult intellectual in the mould of 
I think someone like Jordan Peterson, where because he talks about, I've read Sun Tzu's Art of War, I've read Thucydides, and all of these things are kind of constantly invoked to be like, he's, you know, he's operating on a, on a level you guys can't even imagine. And I think that's probably less interesting than what he actually did, which is, you know, vigorously use the campaigning tools that were available to him, came up with a very great message and take back control. You know what I mean? I just think the things that he did do really well are probably more boring than this kind of aura of him as like some sort of data ninja. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, one, I think, although Vote Leave did have a better campaign, and although, you know, I mean, I remember at the start of 2016, sitting down with some senior people at the top of the Remain campaign and they went we know that they will basically run what they've done as business for Britain which was the kind of predecessor organization that Matthew Elliott had set up before hiring Cummings they will they will do all of the kind of negative attacks on business to stop them coming out in favor they will muddy things with with you know what they described as fake experts and they will use dubious claims about cost like they did in the AV referendum and it was a perfect and entirely correct analysis of what the vote leave campaign would do. Unfortunately, it was a lot like when Darson Wenger used to do a sort of perfect analysis of what made the other team's attacker correct, only for you know, them to bang five yeah, goals or whatever past to Arsenal. kind of just let it happen. One thing I do think of when I think back to it is that their advertising was extremely shady. I'm remembering that leaflet that they had where they said, you know, the entirety of Turkey's basically you know, Turkey population 76 million is about to join the EU. You know, dog whistle to the fact. And I think this is something we should remember about Penny Morden. I've written in my column this week. She went on TV, she went on the Mar programme and said, we can't veto Turkish accession to the EU. Just a flat out lie. Just a lie. And I went and found, because of the conversations that you and I had, I thought, I wonder how the BBC reported that Marsha appearance. It said, Penny Morden, Britain can't veto Turkey's EU accession. That was it. No mention that said Penny Morden incorrectly claims, right? And it was the apogee of that thing of journalism of just saying a politician has said something, right? They've, the politician has said it's it's raining and it's not our job to look out of the window and tell you whether or not that is in fact correct. And those things do still really get my goat. Yeah, and I think it does capture it captures that that well. You know, it will, as with all campaign room dramas, allow people to go, oh, well, you know, it was because the other side had a genius expert and we couldn't possibly have, have equaled that, which I, I don't think is true. And the Leap but, campaign do complain a lot about the fact that, the, you know, the gut, they had the apparatus of Whitehall behind the Remain campaign. Although I think, talking about those leaflets, the government's pro-Remain leaflet about the economic costs, I think was produced by a Leave mole, because that is one of the worst pieces of government information I've ever seen. Do you remember? It was the black and white booklet yeah. of they sent it i was like it looked like a sort of council tax information pack if, if any if more than one in a thousand people who received that read it i would be extraordinarily surprised i mean things right it is it is of course true that remain had the apparatus of whitehall behind it what i think is also true and i'm actually midway through writing a piece about it precisely this when you compare it with the 1975 referendum campaign and the history book you should all read is is yes to europe by robert saunders really brilliant account of the referendum campaign in 75 and one of the things that they did in 75 is they once again had the apparatus of the state behind them but the, what they did with the apparatus of the state was entirely plugged into what they knew the swing voters they mm they needed to with you know far less sophisticated campaign uh, data analysis but they were very data-led 
Up to and including, so what was one of the significant battlegrounds, the swing voter group who no one talks about, probably because it's not at all represented among political journalists, the, the swing vote, vote, which doesn't get talked about at all, is a Southeast Asian... Right, you know, non-EU Zen, um, migrant yeah, community, Brit, second generation, who, who third generation, voted, yeah. Yeah who, voted to, yeah, who voted to leave. Now, if you had got that minority to vote slightly, if you, yeah, kind of, if you closed the gap between Southeast Asian second generation voters and... African second generation voters, bam, not only have you stayed in, but you've stayed in fairly Because those voters were very susceptible to a message of it's really unfair that Polish people can come over here with total freedom movement, but your aunt who wants to move over, you know, your family have been here, yeah. and, generations and, can't. And if we vote to leave, we will have fairer immigration rules, which they did using the imprimatur of a government minister, right? Pretty Patel, who was the face of a lot of that, was a government minister. They used government ministers to reiterate that message. There is literally no... And in the, the this reason why this is an interesting 75 parallel is, again, they were aware in 75 that they had a problem that some Commonwealth immigrants were like, uh, hang about, you've just passed the 68 Immigration Act, which makes my life a lot harder. What the hell is this free movement of people you've got going on? And they had, including some promises that arguably were not wholly kept, that is something which Whitehall, which, you know, if you have the apparatus of government, instead of doing ridiculous, if you vote for this, I'll scream and scream and put your taxes up, as George Osborne claimed he would do, they could have gone, we are unveiling X easier migration policy. And the idea that that wouldn't have, at the edges, fixed that particular problem for Remain is for the birds. Well, this comes back to the thing you always said about, you know, George Osborne not doing a pre-election budget yeah. before it. That's one of the things that does come across cross quite well. I think the Craig Oliver character says basically they've been fighting this referendum for 30 years the kind of complacency and the lack of preparation from a campaign who thought hey look at us, we're kings of the world, we won the 2015 election and when no one expected us to, we can do anything. I think things that I thought were good, the fact that Jeremy Corbyn is nowhere in the in the drama, there's one reference to him in a phone call that Peter Mandelson denies having taken place but it's Craig Oliver, Cameron and Mandelson and then they kind of go we keep putting things on the grid for Labour and then they keep not doing them which is very heavy motif throughout tim shipman's book which is one of the sources for this i think there's definitely a, a great deal of resentment from the rest of the campaign about what labor's point of view was which i both think is is fair but also you know the point i kind of keep making is i keep reading our pieces about what the last referendum campaign did did badly and they need to do better where i kind of go but you're not going to be able to do that, are you? So Without changing Jeremy Corbyn as Labour leader? Well, I mean, in terms of the Labour problem, right, of the four candidates to run in 2015, candidates to run in 2015, so Tristram Hunt, Mary Cray, Liz Kendall, Yvette Cooper, Andy Burnham... Plus the winner. Plus the winner. Yeah. Of those six, only one of them ever said they were willing to share a platform with the Conservatives. All of the rest did kind of like, oh, you know, we know what happened in Scotland, we'd better be independent of that. To be fair, Rebecca Cooper didn't massively play a blinder by her and Tom Watson several days back, kind of going, actually, we think freedom of movement is a problem. Oh, God, grabbing them. This is one of these things which is engraved in my mind, is them emptying the day for the Labour Party to talk about jobs, and Yvette literally grabbing the mic and being like, immigrants, immigrants! I mean, why would that ever have been a good idea? But one of the problems of the official Remain campaign is despite the fact that it was obvious, not from September 2015, when someone who was voted by a landslide having literally said I have not closed my mind to voting for exit but in May 2015 it was obvious that whoever the Labour leadership candidate was they were going to have an official policy of no no vote shed for Europe and the Remain campaign still went into Mm. January 2016 with this idea that the Labour Party would do 
a large chunk of the heavy lifting, which I just think is like it's it, a bad tactical calculation based on on a bad appraisal of Jeremy Corbyn's character and political temperament. It's just inexcusable, and I think it partly comes from the fact that a lot of the Conservatives around the Remain campaign were plastic Eurosceptics, right? They were Eurosceptics in a kind of I'm going for selection. Yeah, in the same way that most Labour MPs are like, oh, I don't like Trident. They don't care about Trident. They're not. I'm not saying they're secretly pro it because obviously it's a second order issue in a way that Brexit is obviously not. No, but they wouldn't. They but wouldn't. But if you went, you know, main, it was not the hill if, they would die on. If you kind of went, I mean, this is where the fact that I also don't care about Trident uh, is going to become a problem. If you kind of went main gate funding, they'd be like, what is that? part of this thing that I'm aware I'm against right. because I don't care about it and my CLP doesn't like it. And I think a lot of Conservatives around the Remain campaign, when they were basically told, so the Labour Party's going to elect a Eurosceptic, and a lot of their MPs are nervous about immigration, and so the Labour Party's probably not going to be that helpful, they kind of went, ah, well, David's a Eurosceptic and he's going to campaign to Remain. It's like, no, 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 guys. They don't mean like a Eurosceptic in a lol I'm pretending, but but now it's June and I'm going to try and get you to vote. Well, I hate bendy bananas, but actually I'm very strongly believe that our economic prosperity depends on remaining in the EU. Yeah. Yep. And they weren't ready either for what it was like to sail into a media headwind. Well, yeah, this thing is it was the first and thus far only time that the, the British right has fought an election in which... I think you call it an away fixture, which yeah. I think is a good way of describing it, right? They just weren't ready for what happens when you go to the Telegraph and the Mail and the Sun and say a thing, and they don't just kind of go, oh, that's very interesting, at minimum, like, oh, that's very interesting. They actually go, ah! You're destroying us all, your blubbies, your... I remember that random Sun front page with Emma Thompson, like, shut your cake hole, or whatever it was. Yeah, I mean, I do remember someone basically saying to me, I think after I'd done the away fixture column, because otherwise I would probably have used this quote, they said, I've never been in a situation in which, as well as vetting someone for whether or not they've said something offensive, their biography is up for grabs, and this is widely shared. Because obviously, if you... Well, I mean, this was a Tory who had never... Because they they never had the kind of go through your bins, go through your CV, go through tearing you down. The point they made is that they said, you expect that. But of course, what happens with that type of story, or at least used to happen and now maybe changing with the advent of social media although of course the interesting question is is how permanent that change is and and how much changes to the facebook algorithm may mean that this is a temporary sort of change in how that works is then basically with that kind of oh this person is a hypocrite because they actually have laid off thousands of people in their mm. their factory and moved production to india right it's a story in the mirror a think piece in the guardian analysis piece by us and then doesn't go anywhere else Whereas when you unveiled someone who had outsourced lots of jobs to somewhere else in Europe as the Remain campaign, mm. so even, let's say they're the same conservative donor, you outmail the same person and the outrage goes around the whole of the right-wing media ecosystem. Well, I had an example of this. I said publicly, I got some pushback for it, that the Panama Papers had already revealed that David Cameron's father had put money through various Caribbean, you know, not illegal, but, you know, the quest, you know, it's something that, and he was a beneficiary of because of inheriting from it. And the first time that came out, he was Tory Prime Minister David Cameron, so it went nowhere. And the second time it came out, he was Remain supporting Prime Minister David Cameron, and suddenly, lo and behold, it got picked up and bounced around the chamber a, a hell of a lot more. And that was a really interesting, you know, version about what... I think Rob Ford, I think I mentioned this last podcast, you know, so one of his things is going to change is about how the media does influence people. And I think that ability to make something seem like a thing is really important to politics. Things that you liked about the drama, 
I mean, I just thought it was really well written. As ever, one of the things he does very well is very skillfully weave the exposition into the plot. Although, of course, a focus group does not work like that because you don't ever have a focus group of the whole... Why on earth do you have a focus Yeah, I was going to say a focus uh, group uh, of a Yukut's water next to a yeah, young graduate. because you like... know they're just going to have a fight. You you have focus groups of, of one type of voter yeah. to test specific messages with, with one type. But it worked really brilliantly as a way of, A, within a fairly limited budget i thought that was very nice i thought it was very good in, to have in there the couple in clacton that douglas carswell had never been to see who were saying well look no one's you know we've not voted no one's come to see us because there was that i would kind of like that personally to have been counterpointed by all the leave supporters who were not left behind i you know the majority of them all the people in kind of leafy bits of hertfordshire because that narrative i think is a bit too dominant you know kind of anti-establishment elite revolt is very flattering to the leave campaign i like the fact they had absolutely no time for daniel hannon and treated him from the start as a figure of fun now a speech from st crispin's day from henry the fifth i mean he did literally do the crispin's day speech i know that That is not an invented scene no i know and i think that just makes me laugh so much because you just imagine everyone else in the office being like hooray oh okay yeah go on dan go on oh god how much of it is he gonna do he knows the whole play oh my god we're never gonna leave i like that a lot i thought the Benedict Cumberbatch's accent travelled too much around the north, but then I consulted somebody who knows Dominic Cummings better than I am, who said that's like Dominic Cummings's accent. He does appear to be from everywhere. I thought, yeah, it was it was very good. The, the thing I thought was interesting was the one thing that I thought did not quite work, which although I thought the writing of it was was the Boris casting. He was too small. Like I have a, the whole thing. There's a great bit in Gary Young's book, um, Who Are We, about identity, which is about how height is incredibly affecting you, of, of how your success in life, right? It, classically, the tall US presidential candidate wins, blah, 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 blah. But people don't organise politically around it. And I think that part of Boris's whole thing is his size his sheer size and the fact he's kind of is kind of hulky and intimidating right and this guy looked the same height as you know about sort of five for eight you know boris is a sort of mini wee version like if you just the same proportions but scaled down just yeah. becomes kind of adorable like like one of those little falabella ponies right it's just and it I, just doesn't work what i thought was interesting about it is from a technical perspective i thought that you can really tell that james graham has got thoroughly fluent in writing for tv in a way that I didn't think Coalition worked as well as, mm. uh, as, as as it would have done as a play. But, of course, the limiting thing with television is on stage you, you are cast for build and then someone can have an unrealistic wig and they can still inhabit the role, whereas on film you're limited by the fact they have to look more like the, the character. Now, the weird thing, of course, about playing Boris Johnson is, is a bit like doing a part made famous by Olivier, right? It, the original performance is, is yeah, you're doing so it in the shadow of in the shadow of great actor, but I think it's fascinating to me that no one has quite managed to nail that, as you say, sense of physical menace amidst the performance. That kind of real because that's the that's the, yeah. the, the the weird thing about Boris Johnson. I think it, it, that it is it is cartoonish up to the point that it becomes a bit. His bulk is is kind of part of that. I think it just, yeah, just like a little mini wee Boris Johnson doesn't work in quite the same way. I also think, he's, like you say, the Olivier comparison is quite apt because he's, he's kind of iconic because of the hair and the, the incredibly artificial speech patterns and all of that. He's a harder challenge to play because in the same way that... I was reading a screenwriting book once that said, you know, that story of the guy who broke into the Queen's bedroom. Actually, how he did it is incredible. Like, scaled a fence, hid from, like, 19 footmen, you know, hidden in the curtains, and then presented himself at the, at the Queen's bed. If you wrote that in a spy drama, people would be like, come on, this is never going to happen. And you cannot write Boris Johnson. Like, he is pre-caricatured, right? It just, it's, you're like... 
Boris Johnson, like, you know, turn that down to 11, chewing the scenery a bit there. But that he, in the real life, the scenery, it is chewed. Yeah. Joe Cox's murder, I thought, was about dumb well and sensitively the thing which it revealed which we yeah we knew already but it, it highlighted it very well is that joe cox's murder ought to be the center of the drama right the assassination of an mp ought to be a uh, the the nub of the film but the, but it can't be because we know it was not the nub of the campaign it really ought to have been something which provoked more political discussion than it did as opposed to everyone going hmm Someone who's collected all of this far-right memorabilia has assassinated someone while shouting about traitors. Well, he gave oh, well. his name literally in court as death to traitors, freedom for Britain. Yeah. And I don't like to do whataboutery, but had there been an MP murder during that campaign by an Islamist terrorist, yeah. I think it would have been a much bigger deal. It was minimised. And actually, one thing I did appreciate, that in the drama there's a scene of Nigel Farage on the day and his victory speech saying, I'm not done with not a single bullet fired. And Cummings actually just turns around and just calls him the the, the c word, um, which is you know the kind of closest thing you get to kind of an authorial voice in in that film. But just to be able to do that, to have completely wiped from your memory a far right terrorist using the same kind of language that you've been indulging in, is an extraordinary act for any politician to to have done and to have got away with in the way that Nigel Farage has, I think. But anyway, if you haven't seen it, it's on for On Demand and pick up this week's New Statesman for a James Graham diary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And now for a section we like to call... You Ask Us! Woo! It's 2019, and what have people been asking us, Stephen? So, Thomas Clark asks, What is it with Corbyn sceptics believing Yvette Cooper is a principled Remainer Unity candidate? I.e., it has obviously become a commonplace meme to go, if another Labour leader were in power, if or in some ways if any other Labour leader were in power, the Labour would be for revoking Article 50, for a second referendum, etc., etc., with, for reasons that are not wholly clear to me Yvette Cooper is the kind of regular stand-in. But as we discussed in the previous segment, you know, Yvette Cooper was the person who went, oh, freedom of movement is bad, at a time when there was never any prospect of reforming freedom of movement as part of the campaign. And all that did was just basically go, Labour is worried about immigration as a nakedly party political thing. I don't see any reason to suspect that she wouldn't be doing that now as Labour leader, be going, of course, we are very sensitive to people's concerns. So what I find fascinating about it is it is... The same thing I find, quite literally exactly the same thing I find fascinating about 
not all, because obviously this is not true of all people who would like Yvette Cooper to be leader, and it's not true of all people who, who want Jeremy Corbyn to continue leading the Labour Party. But in both cases, right, you have an overwhelmingly pro-European group of people who, in, who are among supporters of both, who it's not, it's not that they hold opinions about the pro-Europeanism of those two politicians that cannot be reconciled with things that their allies say privately about them, but they involve a willing blindness and a Things willing that to explain those politicians have actually said, said literally said, themselves said and done right yeah. i mean it, we don't even have to look into an alternate universe right in the actual universe we live in Yvette cooper a backbencher who has been perfectly willing to rebel over syria an issue where she was putting herself odds with back with benches perfectly willing to criticize the front bench over immigration has not voted for britain in the eea has not voted yeah, in a way to substantially soften the Brexit position from where it is, has made the focus of her opposition to the Brexit deal, then we would still have the same level of immigration and that it would mean that we were insufficiently able to catch criminals. Now, you can make, I think, a incredibly watertight case than the way that Yvette Cooper is opposing the government's Brexit strategy, i.e. opposing it on immigration and security issues from a, it isn't Brexity enough, i.e. the same way that Jeremy Corbyn opposes it by going, well, this isn't a proper unicorn Brexit enough, is the correct way as far as maximising the labour interest is concerned. What you can't do in either case, and yet almost everyone in the Labour Party is willing to do it for at least one of those politicians, is pretend that that is a pro-European position or then it's going to become a pro-european position it is not a pro-european position yeah i think i kind of i can see how why why this arises because i kind of feel the temptation of it myself of assuming that because somebody is anti-corbyn they must therefore be on the other side of the faction which is sort of fbpe right the follow back pro-european the kind of full bore continuity reign because so many people on the labor side who are opposed to corbyn are happy to talk a lot loudly about his love of Brexit because it's an issue they think, well, whatever that polling was, 72% of of members want another referendum and 88% of them would vote Remain if there was one. They're very happy to be on the right side of public opinion Mm. and where Corbyn is on the wrong side. So they sort of presume that anyone else who's also anti-Corbyn must also be pro-EU in the same way that they are. Well, that I think is to me the really interesting thing about it is because actually, ultimately, what the weird kind of capacity... And yeah, ultimately, right, it is a grim truth that that this podcast alone will inspire at least one incredibly specious blog going, actually, if you rearrange what one of those two politicians says, it secretly spells out, I love the four freedoms, is that in both cases, and this is the central problem the Lib Dems have, Brexit is a secondary issue for most voters still actually it's as a second order issue which people kind of broadly go okay i'm into social liberalism corbyn is into social liberalism therefore he and i must be aligned on europe it's like i'm into cooperism right i'm into corbyn skepticism she's a corbyn skeptic Mm. i don't like brexit therefore she doesn't like brexit and one of the kind of governance so there are two problems that causes the first is of course is that you cannot come up with an electoral case that the Labour Party is going to lose large numbers of Remain voters. Because although when you do a poll going, but look, if Brexit is the most important issue, how do you vote? People go, I'm abandoning the Labour Party. Mm. Demonstratively, it is not the most important issue to most people. It may be that a very bad Brexit transforms voting intention, but it is not proven. For all that I find Corbyn people on Twitter can sometimes be a little bit 
jouncy. They are right to note that the 2017 manifesto did explicitly promise an end to freedom of movement and uh, that they would deliver Brexit and nonetheless Labour got 40% of the vote. So either people weren't reading the manifesto, fair, I mean, who does, if they're a normal human, or they didn't care enough about that issue to find out what Labour's position on it was. Yeah, and in both cases, I think this is a classic example of, I'm sorry, if you really, really care, if Europe is your number one issue... You don't want Jeremy Corbyn to be leader of the Labour Party, and you certainly don't want Yvette Cooper to replace him. It's perfectly legitimate to care about the European Union and want one of those two people to be leader of the Labour Party. Right? It's legitimate for me to care about you know, fitting into my trousers but to have an extra helping of food. However, at some point, my revealed preference to have an extra helping is more important than my concern not to be played by Ainsley Harriet in the New Statesman, the movie. Right? And, but, you, you have to, but you have to be honest about that trade-off. And the thing that I find maddening about, uh, indeed, most in intra-Labour debates is it is a party full of people who are not willing to be honest with themselves. Yeah, imagine when they go to Richard Iowardi's agent and he looks at the photo of you and goes, uh, I'm not willing to put on the weight required no, for the role. it'd be a character role. It'd be like Brando in... Um, um, the Godfather, or was it was it The Godfather where he put loads he put of weight the, on? And uh, it's Heart of Darkness, isn't it? It's the yeah. version of that. What is it? Apocalypse yeah. Now, where he put the like tampons in his mouth. So he yeah. go, bruh, bruh, bruh. I can be Richard Iowade's Heart of Darkness. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Book and produced by Nick Hilton. Why not send in other suggestions for who could play us in the New Statesman movie and don't make them too mean? On Twitter, we're at Stephen KB and at Helen Lewis.